talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. television series by television series hurtle through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking a look at Thor Love and Thunder, released in July 2022, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Ken Loach speaking to film stories about his new movie, The Old Oak, Martin Scorsese putting back the release date of his next movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, or Jennifer Aniston liking an Instagram post about Brad Pitt's new movie, Bullet Train, instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and here's what I had to say about Thor Love and Thunder after I saw it. Massive emotional roller coaster, everyone you want to turn up does, spectacularly creepy bit, brilliant pop video gag, and is that hint of the new big bad? I knew it! That's what I had to say about it though, and joining me to give her thoughts on Thor Love and Thunder is writer Catherine Lowe. Catherine, where can people find you? You can find me at Kitty Costanza on Twitter and Instagram, and the film podcast I co-produce with Rich Nelson is Don't You Want Me, which is at DYWM Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. We talk about interesting relationships in film. We've covered everything from Drive to Superman to Before Sunrise to Die Hard to I Love You Man, which links to the Marvel cinematic universe due to the presence of Paul Rudd. Okay, so before we go any further, Catherine, what happens in Thor Love and Thunder? Thor, who's Brett Michaels from 80s hair metal group Poison, if you took his gym <laughs> membership too seriously, he's part of the Guardians of the Galaxy. He has to come to New Asgard because Theodore Lawrence from the 1994 film adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women is killing gods and kidnapping children, presumably as a nod to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Thor starts hanging out with his ex-girlfriend, who gains power by getting a blow dry and using a hammer. She spends a lot of time trying to come up with a catchphrase involving the hammer and at no point does anyone suggest stop hammer time, which didn't sit well with me. People die, people get rescued, people faint at the sight of pubic hair. There's a strong implication throughout that when the chips are down, the main force for good in this world stems from the band Guns N' Roses. Okay, well I'm really interested in the answer to this question, which is, Catherine, how much do you think about any of the characters in this film before you saw it? (laughs) Absolutely nothing. (laughs) I've seen... I've seen very few of the films from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I have seen Iron Man, but very long time ago, and also Ant-Man, and I very much enjoyed watching the Netflix series Jessica Jones. But yeah, I'm just a bit intimidated by it. It's like, it's no snobbery or anything. I think that just my brain doesn't sometimes feel sort of strong enough to grasp the intricacies of this universe, but this is where you come in, Tim. So, you know, you can help me with this. I mean, I'm a bit of a theatre girl, so my idea of special effects is like a marionette seeming to be able to sing and dance at the same time so <laughs> so the effects i see in films like this is a whole other arena well that does bring me neatly into where i wanted to go first with this which is that obviously there are three threads that are picked up in this particularly from the end of avengers endgame there's also why is gamora not with the guardians of the galaxy why is thor out of shape why is he with them where's loki why is asgard on earth which are all sort of ongoing storylines but did you feel you needed to know any of those before you actually watched it yes and no in the sense that i was kind of 
aware while watching it that I wasn't necessarily recognising all the people that would come in and out of frame, you know, like you'd see Chris Pratt and I know that he's part of the universe, but I wouldn't know exactly how to place him in the context of things. But they were making great efforts to try and kind of give us clean summaries of what had happened so far. And I always, if I couldn't grasp something, I always put it down to the fact that I wasn't being quite quick enough for the film. I, I, I knew that, you know, maybe other people that were coming in completely fresh would be able to pick up all the threads. So sure, it was entirely my fault. Well, in case you were wondering, Gamora disappeared at the end of Avengers Endgame because they had to just kill her father and she sort of sloped off. I yeah. don't doubt they'll be looking for her in the next Guardians of the Galaxy. Thor's out of shape because he was depressed at the first time they lost to Thanos. Loki disappeared during the time travel bit of Avengers Endgame in a past that no longer exists. He made his escape at the end of the first Avengers film, which has created his own series where he's now doing paperwork for people who repair time. Oh, wow. Asgard on Earth because it got destroyed by Thor and Loki's sister in Thor Ragnarok. And that's basically it. I mean, this is, although kind of what's come since Avengers Endgame has dealt with the fallout from it, like I said, the time fallout in Loki, the emotional fallout in WandaVision, sort of geopolitical in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, all kinds of things like that. But it's only really been this and Spider-Man Far From Home, which is supposedly set, quote, 17 minutes after we last see Peter in Endgame, yes. that have directly picked up from it. And obviously Thor leaves with the Guardians at the end of it. And we do get a couple of minutes of them at the start. But I think because Taika Waititi is notorious for doing, you know, making the film he wants to make and then doing a plot only edit and only putting back in what he thinks is missing. I see. And I yeah. think as great as the Guardians were, their section had really evidently been pared down, I think. Oh, okay, yeah. And, you know, they made the big play of them being in it. Yes, I see. I mean, what do you think of Taika Waititi's influence on the franchise? I think it's been the breath of fresh air. They had problems with the Thor films previously. I mean, the first one, the one Kenneth Branagh directed, is good, but it wasn't as good as some of the other early films that surrounded it, particularly Right, okay. Iron Man and the first Captain America film. And with Thor The Dark World, which we will mention a couple of times, the whole saga about they wanted Patty Jenkins to do it, but the whole process since the disaster they had with the first Hulk film, as always, it's got to be collaborative between, you know, directors, stars, everyone involved. And her take was, well, that's not how I make films. So without malice, she turned it down. So they gave yeah. it to one of the Game of Thrones directors who didn't really know what to do with it and made a bit of a mess of it. Taika Waititi comes in for Thor Ragnarok makes it like into an 80s action film turned up to 12 because yeah. you like an 80s action comedy and I like that he's gone in a different direction with this that you know the previous Thor films have been about big battles with everyone involved and this is more it's like a quest apparently very consciously he said well we did the 80s action comedy last time this has got to be more like an 80s thing like Conan the Barbarian or the Beastmaster where there's humour in it but it's more yeah. about the story and That's I really it. like that he's not just people haven't liked that he's not repeated the same thing and it's got a bit of a negative reception for that but by doing something different I, I think it was important really that he moved on like that yeah that's so interesting that you should say that about the sort of 80s flavor to it because it was about sort of 10 minutes into it and I thought this reminds me of something I'm getting a kind of feeling from far back and then I thought I mean this is going to really age me but one of my first cinema experiences was being taken
taken to see Terry Gilliam's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which is the film that came out like late eighties. It's got that kind it of really harsh. I've not yeah, thought of that. Yeah, it's got that sort of feeling to it. Also, I thought it had a quite a strong influence from Princess Bride tonally as well. You know, as as you've been pointing out. I mean, it's just it's got that feeling of it's quite dreamlike. I suppose it has a sort of even though you have all of these incredible effects and it's incredibly slick looking it's very fast moving his script feels as if it's you know being yeah quite influenced by that kind of quite eccentric inventive surreal kind of yeah films that people like Terry Gilliam were making at around that time I think though we've got to address this and get this out of the way one of the reasons there's been a negative reception to it I'm not saying this about everyone who you know took against it I'm not saying it against people who just don't like Marvel films or who saw it and just didn't enjoy it there are some people who don't like the fact that Thor is Jane in it I mean if you look at the history of the movies that get I mean I know which Marvel films I think didn't make the cut and it yes. doesn't correspond with this list because the ones that seem to get the biggest kicking oh the earlier today I noticed this but it's Captain Marvel Black Widow on the TV Ms. Marvel and She-Hulk you know it, yeah. it's that whole thing about I remember when it was first announced that Natalie Portman was coming back and Jane was going to be Thor Twitter erupted into that kind of oh it's gone woke and you know Piers oh, Morgan did this yeah. oh what if there was Wonder Man thing you know to which the answer is yeah. always I'm sure DC will get round to doing Dane of Elysium who's the male Wonder Woman eventually but if yes. you mean Wonder Man he's a Marvel character and they're doing a series about him I think there was a lot of that in it and that really leaves a bad taste in my mouth, especially as Jane being Thor is not a new thing at all and people didn't take well to that well they never do do they you know there is, there's a certain kind <laughs> kind of person that you know doesn't like anyone who isn't male white and over the hill being the lead in something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, it's quite interesting the way Natalie Putman is presented in it when she's got the hammer and she's fighting. I mean, something that I wondered what you thought about in terms of the film as a whole is about like, I suppose the way sort of having superpowers is kind of equated with this way you look. And Natalie Putman, when she has these powers, she kind of looks like she's stepped out of a salon, if you know what I mean. She's got like being given this incredible blow dry, you know, even though she's already an ex- incredible incredibly beautiful woman she kind of looks like she's being sort of permanently airbrushed you know she's presented as being the most kind of conventionally attractive woman that you could imagine and I think at a certain point I thought oh there's something in me just coming at this fresh that I would have kind of quite liked maybe Natalie Putman to be able to in those sequences look a little bit more like herself but I understand that she's meant to echo isn't she how Thor how Chris Hemsworth is looking isn't she yeah there is an element to that but they do do it sort of in both ways I mean there have been characters that have been you know female as well as male that have been made less polished less attractive I mean yeah. the one thing at the moment is Titania has just turned up in the first episode of She-Hulk her first appearance who's basically she's not quite a villain she's an anti-hero but she hates She-Hulk <laughs> <laughs> she's just determined to punch her all the time. But if you've ever seen her in the comics where she looks like somebody who's escaped from the cast of Gladiators and all has right, taken okay. a lot of hormone enhancement pills and they've yeah. made her into like a really... Because Jamila Jamil's playing her and they've made her oh, into okay. a really kind of like silly-looking Instagram influencer type. Yes. So there is a kind of cuts-both-ways thing and I do think it's possibly because Jane is basically becoming an Asgardian. It's kind of attuned to that rather than gratuitous, really. Although... There 
is the whole thing. I mean, she must have been impressed with it herself because famously Natalie Portman refused to come back a couple of times because she, I have some sympathy with this. She didn't like what was done with Jane in Thor The Dark World. Oh, right. Okay. Where she's basically somebody with dating problems and that's the extent of it. And, you know, she's right. been, you know, she'd had quite a heroic role in the first Thor film. And yes. following that, she wouldn't come back for Thor Ragnarok. She also, and this was a real problem, wouldn't come back for Avengers Endgame where Jane has a massive part in the time travel bit in it. They covered for that by using a mixture of unused footage of her and also, as Ben Baker brilliantly puts it on here, someone who's not the back of Natalie Portman's head. So, you know, <laughs> she was that opposed to it. Apparently, Taika Waititi just asked to speak to her. Yeah. And at the end of that call, she's like, yeah, I'm doing it. I oh, totally wow. appreciate what he's doing. So, you know, she must have been comfortable enough with it herself. Yes, yes, completely. I mean, these things can apply to men too. I mean, when you see someone like Chris Hemsworth in a film like this being presented, how how he is does that feel like a pressure to you as a guy do you feel you know his because he's presented isn't he as being kind of at the peak of physical perfection i mean i know that's kind of part of what who he's meant to be as thor but does you know do you think that that feels like a pressure i'm not sure really because in the case of thor in some ways he's not an aspirational character because he is yeah. a fantasy figure who is a bit of a clutch i will say the one thing that made me think better renew that gym membership the second lockdown finishes was in Sean <laughs> Chain the Legend of the Ten Rings because I used to be quite a key martial artist when I was younger. Yeah. And Simu Lu just basically, you know, slim but absolutely ripped, like throwing people around the bus. I thought that, yes. that's that's made me feel a little bit seen, you know. Well, there's time also to start the running of, again. Yeah, completely. And there's also the thing of all the women fainting when his pants drop. And I was thinking, yeah, well, that's a that's kind of a pressure, isn't it? <laughs> I did like the way they did that. Though. I'm going to make oh, no, no comment yeah, about funny. that. I'm just going to just going to go past that. But they had to think about he then threatened <laughs> to flick Jane Valkyrie and Korg's clothes off, and they were like very quickly, no, no, no. But I don't think anyone would notice if whatever the hell Korg was actually wearing flew off because he's a man made of rocks. <laughs> He kind of reminded me a bit of Crichton. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> there is a real bit of Crichton going on there. One thing I really liked about this, and it does tie into the Hall of Gods thing as well, is that there were a lot of characters who make appearances, who aren't important to the plot, yeah. who are actually given an excuse to be there. I mean, there's people like Lady Sips in it, but not in it very much. There's Meek, who is seen drawing on a whiteboard and told off for doing it too noisily. <laughs> the Asgardian players, who I love their reaction to the children being abducted is that people need drama. <laughs> Eric and Darcy, obviously they're there to lend support to Jane, but they're not crowbarred into the plot. And apparently there were scenes shot. This mustn't have been a light decision. With Jeff Goldblum as the Grandmaster and Peter Dinklage as Eatery the Dwarf, that were just considered a bit superfluous to the plot. They aren't just actors who throw on the cutting room floor. Yes, well, during Russell Crowe's scene, they cut away. And I thought, hang on, was that Simon Russell Beale? Have they got Simon Russell Beale in this? Not yes. speaking. And I, 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 it just completely drew me. And it was him, wasn't it? Yeah, incredible cameos from just... I mean, how are they able to get everyone in these films? I mean, you've got just Matt Damon cropping up as being a sort of pedantic theatre group leader and... <laughs> 
generally they take a kind of studio approach rather than a movie by movie approach and people sign on to do a certain number of things that's why you I got see, okay. William Hurt when he wasn't particularly well had a couple of you know two line things in some films yeah it's generally that basis I imagine Matt Damon was more than happy to come back because the Asgardian players now including Melissa McCarthy having the time of their life yeah I, I really like that <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was very funny well there, there are some I'll be interested to see what your reaction to this is because there are some great cameos for people who follow what's going on like in the Hall of Gods you know, yeah. very briefly seen you got it's only you realize how many deities there are you got Bass from Black Panther Ra from Moon Knight the great protector from Shang-Chi Legend of the Ten Rings some of the Celestials from Eternals who kind of oh, look yes. puzzled when they crash out through the wall which is not really <laughs> what the Celestials are supposed to do you know so things like that but also this is a real deep one in amongst the Asgardians the tour guide is a guy called Daryl who when they were making Thor Ragnarok Taika Waititi had the thing about we'd seen the home lives of the other Avengers you know even yeah. Captain America who lived on his own playing Vortis dance band records <laughs> but we hadn't seen what happened with Thor so he made this short film as part of it called Team Daryl where basically it's about Thor has to share a flat with this ordinary bloke who becomes a minor celebrity because he lives with Thor and yeah oh. that was a lovely little extra it was yeah. shown before some showings of it it was on the Blu-ray and so on but they brought him in as the Asgard tour guide and oh, I heard so a smattering of ooh in the cinema <laughs> just not very much do you know what the significance is because one thing that was fantastic about going to see this was that I thought okay all references in this will be aimed at you know significantly younger people I'm not going to recognise any of the music or anything like that and then one of the big action sequences near the beginning they're playing Welcome to the Jungle it's like you know I know this song <laughs> And then they have quite a few songs from Appetite for Destruction throughout the movie, don't they? And then, you know, the boy called Axel. Do you know what the significance was of that? They do generally across all the films. They use music from all eras really, really well. That is, yeah. you know, a really notable thing. And in fact, recently we've been going back and covering some of the pre-Marvel Cinematic Universe X-Men films in this. And it's notable. They feature very little pop music. In fact, I think in X2, which recently did with Gabby Hutchinson Crouch, there is three seconds of Backstreet Boys record, which is a immediately turned off yes it's all about that but apparently Taika Waititi was listening to Welcome to the Jungle on repeat while he was trying to set a mood for it because famously his pitch for Thor Ragnarok was he cut about bits of Big Trouble in Little China to Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin and just sent oh, right. that okay. in so yeah. he kept listening to that and then it just kind of seeped in and Guns N' Roses became part of the plot and oh, I love the so... idea that you know they're treated as rock giants but at the same time there's a bit of tongue-in-cheekness to it as well like there's oh, a ridiculous of Heimdall's son renaming himself Axel, the fact that Korg says, Oh, yeah, GNR. <laughs> If ever anyone was a rock god, he is. And there's also, I can't believe how few people have spotted this. When Thor and the children rise up to fight Gore the God Butcher, November Rain comes on, or rather the instrumental build-up at the end of November Rain, where it cuts away to Jane in a hospital bed, having yeah. a nightmare, riding back and forth, exactly like Axel does at the end of the video for November Rain, and then sits bolt oh, upright wow. like he did. And that was such a clever joke that hardly anyone noticed it. <laughs> 
I love how much that's squarely directed towards people over a certain age. I love that. No, well, I mean, setting an action sequence to something like Welcome to the Jungle is a fantastic idea. And I did think, oh, yeah, if no one's done this before, then it's well overdue. Well, there's something I'm wondering if you spotted, given your affinity for 80s films, <laughs> which is, I mean, there are lots of great gags about, you know, the shops in New Asgard and so on. Like there's Infinity Cones, which is nice cream parlour based on the Infinity Stones. But <laughs> did you notice what the cocktail bar on the boat was called? I didn't know. Cocktails and Dreams. Oh, really? As in what Tom Cruise wants to set up in Cocktail. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. I mean, there's so many. It felt really, you know, there are times where it felt a little bit labyrinthy as well, in some ways. You know, it's just, it's got that feeling to it. I mean, did this one make you laugh more than the other ones? I mean, I thought it had a, my favourite line in it, I think, was, you're a team now, team kids in a cage. <laughs> <laughs> really and I quite like the one about meditating just makes me more angry as well. I could relate to that one. Yeah, there was some absolute, I mean, there normally are laugh out loud moments in most of these things. But I think what's interesting is that, again, seems to be praising Taika Waititi quite a lot at the moment but it was him and Jennifer Caton Robinson who co-wrote it with him yeah. kind of they were aware that just by because there's a whole thing about everything got moved around because of the pandemic and some stuff that you know has only come out recently had more or less been sitting around since 2019 and they had to go back and re-edit things and reshoot things and change yeah. things like it varied all the way from there's a reveal in Eternals which was originally a reveal in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings involving yeah. the same thing but because they came out with the order swap they had to change that around somehow that still worked all the way to an entire character had to be taken out of Spider-Man No Way Home because it conflicted with the fact he's introduced in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Oh I see okay. This is the very last thing I think that had been wildly moved around but they were aware that by chance it was coming out in the middle of a couple of more serious things in the verse of comments like Eternals, Moon Knight and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness which as funny as it is that's essentially a horror film and so their intention was apparently, and I'm quoting here, to make it as if 10-year-olds had told us what should be in the movie and we said yes to every single thing. Yes, yes, I see. Okay. Kids, get to popcorn now. Let me tell you the story of the space viking, Thor Odinson. He was no ordinary man. He was a god. After saving planet Earth for the 500th time, Thor set off on a new journey. Well, he got in shape. He went from dead bod of Godbard. And after all that, he reclaimed his title as the one and only Thor. Oh, spoke too soon. Jane? What did you think of Russell Crowe? I thought he was brilliant. I thought, he isn't somebody I would usually imagine would enjoy sending himself up like that. But he seems to be having the time of his life. <laughs> he really, he really did. did. I really enjoyed that scene. And he did these little movements, like when he's going down the stairs and he holds his skirts. And no, I thought all of that was really, it's quite a scene-stealing moment, that, isn't it? I thought Tessa Thompson, really great. And it's all, is she in quite a few of the other ones? Yes, yes. She seems to be one of the breakout characters, actually. And I've got more to say about her her character in a second but I want to say my favourite bit was I don't think we saw enough of the Guardians of the Galaxy in it but there is the thing about you know the cast of that are an absolute gang and they're notorious for improvising lines and making up gags on the spot and famously when Disney wanted to suspend James Gunn who directs the Guardians films because he'd been critical of a certain American with silly hair whose oh, okay. followers then dug out you know a tweet he'd done in about 1854 which you know maybe wasn't an appropriate joke yes I see yeah, okay. But the entire cast said, well, we're not coming back. 
if he doesn't do it. So he oh, reinstates okay. it. But apparently in the script, it was just, they put in some beat point lines and an idea what was going and said, just do what you would do. And Karen Gillan has said she was encouraged to bring out her bonkers side, which she loved doing. And <laughs> that brings me to my favourite bit in here, which is Nebula and Mantis wanted to kill the goats that Thor's been given because they're annoying. <laughs> And there's also when Thor says to the Guardians, I'll miss you, and Nebula shouts, get in the ship, and he says, maybe not her. (laughs) I thought the goats were great. I really appreciate, I I thought, yeah, there should be more things. I also, is it true that Christian Bale took inspiration from the Aphex twin? Come to daddy, yes. 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 Gore looks different in the comics. He looks a bit more like Voldemort from Harry Potter. And where, you know, something doesn't translate well, it is often reinvented for the films. But I think they really, because they made him this really sinister character. And that bit where when they're pursuing him in the goat boat, as it's come to be called, <laughs> and they go into that kind of part of the universe where everything is black and white. Yes. Aside from the fact that I later thought that's that episode of Mr. Ben, which kind of soured it a bit. But that really <laughs> creeped me out in the cinema, just the colour suddenly disappeared. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Sort of like draining away and making you feel a bit, yeah. And it made him feel all the more sinister, like he was draining in. Not that it might extend beyond the screen, but you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely. I mean, how does I don't know how he manages to perform these. As I say, my main reference for Christian Bale is being a very handsome and floppy-haired Theodore Lawrence in Little Women in 1994. So seeing him in something like this is a real shot to the system for me. Well, I'll dial back to that in a second, but there's a couple of serious well I say series more series that we need to address which is the first one is mentioning Tessa Thompson and Valkyrie yeah is that it had a bit of a mixed reception because Valkyrie is famously she was the first bisexual character in Marvel Comics I think that was alluded to in the scene that was cut from Thor Ragnarok because it slowed the film down where she's sneaking out of a woman's bedroom in the morning but obviously it's alluded to in here they've recently made moves towards representing different sexualities in Loki in Eternals in Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness and I'm fairly sure that when Yelena Black Widow's sister reappears they will address the fact that she's asexual in the comics you know through her training she's been put off any kind of like personal interaction for life really but some people have seen said that they still don't feel it's representation enough and I can kind of see what they mean. You know, even in, the mentioned the X-Men movies before, even in them they treated gay relationships and you know, you've got Deadpool in them as well who would just have sex with the tabletop space invaders if it asked nicely. You know, <laughs> it's just treated as a casual part of who they are. Yes. And I don't think that's quite, it's still a little bit not quite swept under the carpet but it's not pushed out into the open either. It was a detail that I picked up on about her just by dint of the conversations that she had with other characters but as you say it was just something that was referred to in a way that wasn't pointed it was just something about her in some ways I quite appreciated that in the sense that it just made her feel like that was just part of who she is and the main relationship in the film is the one between Jane and Thor we understand that theirs is the one that we're meant to be centering on and I suppose in terms of the relationships that Val's having you're led to believe that maybe or at least I expected that there might be a film to come that might 
have a romantic relationship that she might be having at the centre of it. To be fair, they tried that with Eternals, but there are 10 lead characters in that. So Right, OK. <laughs> we also okay, had to yeah. deal with Harry Keegan glowering at villagers because he wants to be in charge of them, you know, <laughs> got in the way of all that. But the other thing, mentioning the Thor-Jane relationship, is the one big, I think, possible valid criticism there's been. There are people talking about Jane's cancer storyline, saying it should have had a trigger warning at the start of it. I think it was quite obvious in some of the trailers and so on that that was happening. And I'm not quite sure that I agree that there should have been, but I am trying to be understanding towards people who maybe were a little bit shaken by it. But the question there is, where do we draw the line? Yeah, I think it's really tricky to know where to draw the line. But by the same token, I I relate to how that storyline maybe wrong foots you a little bit. When you're being swept away by the mood of a movie like this, I can see how that storyline can wrong foot you a bit, depending on how some of the experiences you've had. But that doesn't necessarily mean, as you say, that then you think that there should be a trigger warning for everything. Yeah, it's a really tricky area, isn't it, really? I suppose I thought that maybe they'd bitten off a little bit more than they could chew, that they were trying to maybe do too many things in one movie slightly with that story, where there's something about when you're having those scenes of someone in a hospital and it touches on an experience that so many people will have either directly or through someone they know will have you know encountered that was I thought incredibly sobering for those moments and then when you put them back into the fantasy world it wrenches you into such a different kind of atmosphere and then you're brought back to it. I suppose I can sort of see how some people might be thinking oh you know this just on an emotional level, this feels really like I'm having to go to so many different places when I'm watching this. I don't know what to do with my popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you got the joke in first because I was really keen to say it's starting to sound a bit like an episode of That's Life. <laughs> <laughs> the switch from tragedy to newspaper misprints but that's a good <laughs> moment to move on to i was going to ask in the kind of mini don't you want me moment what did you think of it as a film about relationships well i thought that that was really an interesting aspect of it actually was that montage that they had of the two of them having these domestic moments together that was an well that was another thing where i thought oh this is a whole other aspect of this movie they're going to be kind of trying to bring you into a relationship that lots of people will be able to relate to and how those things can break down just if people are you know a bit too busy or can't spend enough time together or you know just like the timing isn't right and this that the other and I quite appreciated that they tried to go into that a bit actually I thought that was a nice attempt I didn't think that maybe there was quite enough time for it I mean I really like that kind of thing which is you know part of the reason why we do this podcast called Don't You Want Me but I really liked that there was a bit of time given over to that you know what, what did you think about it? I enjoyed it but they're a couple that I've not really been that invested in on screen which is interesting because I think it's to do with you know the absolute diversity in the other sense in the other films you know in the more literal sense in that I kind of always say the relationship I look at and think I I would like that is Star-Lord and Gamora. The relationship that reminds me of the actual realities of adult dating is Ant-Man and the Wasp. (laughs) (laughs) Because I had always felt more investment in those, I think Thor and Jane kind of took me a little bit by surprise in this, because I was surprised at how wrenching I found it, you know, when you realise there isn't any hope for them or, well, for her specifically. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, that was quite in, in what is otherwise, you know, in moments so incredibly upbeat as a film. It's quite difficult to swallow, I think, the tragedy of all of that. It was quite, I found that a little, I remember on the day when I went to it, I can remember sort of feeling a little bit kind of like, oh, Oh, I wasn't expecting to sort of feel a bit kind of downcast. I was just ready to be sort of swept away on the fantasy of it all. So I can remember being quite surprised by all of that storyline of actually how serious it was. But we do both end on a positive note and get a kind of very bleakly humorous cap on that when Cord refers to her as Jane Fonda <laughs> and Jodie Foster, which is a very Cord thing to do. But then we get, because obviously Gore did everything to save his daughter and his daughter comes back and he's not there and Thor takes her on yes and it's got that lovely moment of him trying to parent her and it is interesting they are bringing a lot of who will be teenage characters or you know young adults in a couple of years time into it they are clearly going to do the young Avengers because they've already brought some of them in and I suspect that she's being set up for that as well yes yes she must be and good press for uncles which I like to see (laughs) great One thing I was going to say was something that I think might have changed since I was young is that they use the word shit a lot in this film. And I thought like a family film when I was young, I don't think you would have heard the word shit quite so much, but they use it all the time in this movie. See, I'd not even really noticed, to be honest with you. So maybe it shows the cumulative effect of these things. Yeah, maybe. I think I think now I don't know about you, but when I was little, if I'd said shit, I, you know, probably would have been reprimanded but i thought maybe shit now is kind of like a maybe it's because of the sort of like yeah the shit's going down sort of an american thing maybe it's becoming actually quite a socially acceptable word for everyone now i'm fine with people using the word shit it was just a it's just an interesting development in pop culture yeah so overall you enjoyed it then i did thank you so much for encouraging me to watch this tim like i feel, I feel as if i've actually entered the real world now but i've actually spent some time in the cinema watching one of these movies so thank you so much well just tell me you didn't get caught up by the post-credits scenes because we've still got to discuss them. First of all, we cut back to Russell Crowe's use asking his son, Brett Goldstein, as Hercules to go and get Thor for him. <laughs> now, I think he's a fantastic choice because Hercules... I didn't think... There was a number of characters I thought they weren't going to bother doing and Hercules was one of them. Now, in Marvel Comics, he's a bit men-behaving badly, should we say, so he is a perfect choice for him. Yes, I like Brett Goldstein. I think he's very good. Yeah, he's very funny. And then, at the very end, we get the scene with... Idris Elba as Heimdall welcoming Jane into Valhalla. Yes. Which is supposed to be, you know, an afterlife thing. But I actually, I'm a little bit more cynical. Marvel Comics have a mantra, which is nobody stays dead except Uncle Ben, as in Spider-Man's Uncle Ben. Okay, the idea okay. being that you can do what you want with characters because down the line, they can always be, it's usually either that they've been sent away in the secret mission by S.H.I.E.L.D. and been replaced by a life model decoy, which is basically a synthetic human yeah. made up to look like someone. Or the scrolls who are shape-shifting aliens have been pretending to be Iron Fist or something. <laughs> it was actually a scroll that, you know, bought it and then they reappear and go, hey, the scrolls have been holding me prisoner. That sounds like a cliche, but they make jokes out of those cliches. But I yes. think having them in the Valhalla is insurance in case, you know, they think we need to use Jane and or Heimdall down the line. Oh, I see. So okay. there's a way, there's an in for them to come back. Clever. Yeah. Yes. Love Idris Elba. You'd be surprised how often the loving of Idris Elba is mentioned in this. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm watching the US office for the first time and just recently watched the episodes that he was in and enjoyed them so much. So much. What, what a fine actor. <laughs> 
wish I thought of a different question now, but there's only one more <laughs> left for me to ask. Catherine, if you had a sword capable of felling gods, what would you use it for? I think I'd destroy all brownies with walnuts in them because I think that's just wrong. <laughs> all brownies should be kept walnut free. <laughs> Catherine the walnut brownie butcher, if I like that. <laughs> Catherine, thank you, and Excelsior. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Tim. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me, at timworthington.org.